The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Come to God's Word on this Easter morning. Easter morning is always one that resounds with joy. We have trumpets to add joy to our music this morning. We have lush colors and beautiful flowers to add joy to our, our drive-in and our, our, our surroundings. We, we have Easter dresses Maybe, maybe some of you are dressed up at home in your Easter dresses. We have Easter baskets, Easter dinners that uh, add joy to the Easter day. And I suspect that even if some of these traditions are on hold for us this year, we still wake up with, with a thrill of hope on Easter morning. But why? Where does this joy come from? We often identify Easter with these things, but each of these things, whether it's the trumpets or the flowers or the dresses or the the baskets or the candy, each of these things are not the cause for our joy. They are a mere reflection of what truly grounds our hope and our joy. And that reality, that reality that grounds our hope and joy is found in God's Word, an accurate account of what happened in history on that first Easter morning nearly 2,000 years ago. And the best way to learn, of course, about what happened in history is to turn to an eyewitness account. And I'd encourage you to do that this morning in Luke chapter 24, as we read verses 13 to 35. Would you follow with me as I read? That very day, two of them, that's disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And they said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and and besides all this, it is now the third day since these happened, these things happened, and moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Well, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Father, thank you for giving us your word, for relating the events of that first Easter and the joy that your resurrection brought. May you encourage our hearts with this joy and this hope this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I wonder what it would be like to walk home from Jerusalem back uh, to, to your own home after the feast, the year that Jesus died. You know, Passover was celebrated annually, and maybe we could understand something of what it would be like to walk home after the feast was over on a typical year. We know what it's like to, to drive home maybe after Christmas or, or Thanksgiving. After the, the celebration's over, we've, we've, we've enjoyed the time together with family and, and friends. The celebration's taken place, but now our time together is over and we're driving home and you feel that sense of, of tiredness as you're entering into to normal life again, even though the, the joy of what you've celebrated is still fresh in your minds. Maybe that's what it was like on a normal year, but not this year. Not this year, because this year was characterized by that sort of emotional whiplash that is difficult to process, combined with uncertainty of rumors and and unconfirmed reports. And so here are these disciples trying to process all that has happened. The week began with Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then it appeared to end with Jesus, their hope of redemption, hanging on a criminal's cross. But now this morning reports have come that perhaps Jesus is alive again. They prepared to leave as these rumors were flying, but there's no definite clarity. No one has actually seen Jesus. And so these two disciples, Cleopas and and another who's not named, maybe it was his wife. It seems clear that the two lived together, invited Jesus into their home, so perhaps it was his wife, but we don't know for sure. These two disciples are walking home, processing these events, And the stage is set for Jesus to come on the scene and announce the reality that grounds our Easter joy. Well, the main point in this morning's story, I think, is clear. The main point of this story is this. The risen Jesus changes sadness to joy and disappointment to hope by giving his disciples eyes to see and hearts to believe. The risen Jesus changes sadness to joy and disappointment to hope by giving his disciples eyes to see and hearts to believe. But let's, let's kind of walk through this story here and watch this change play out carefully. And let's start by noticing the disciples' sadness and disappointment that come out in verses 13 to 25. And in the course of Luke's narrative, this is the first time that we actually see Jesus alive. 
The angels have announced Jesus' resurrection, but we haven't seen him himself until he joins these two disciples on the road to their home in Emmaus and joins them, walking up alongside them, and calmly asks, so, what are you guys talking about? And you have to imagine, at least I imagine, a twinkle in his eye and this, this, this look of joy in his face as he prepares to draw these disciples out and announce the hope of his resurrection. The disciples, meanwhile, uh, don't recognize Jesus at all. And that's maybe something of a surprise for us. How would disciples who knew Jesus not recognize him? And some have theoried that, well, maybe it was because of their grief that they didn't recognize him, or maybe his resurrection body looked different. And we're not sure uh, for sure, but the text seems to indicate that they were kept from recognizing him. You see what it says uh, there in verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing it, them. It seems more like God is keeping them from recognizing who Jesus is until he's informed their hearts from the scriptures to understand what the resurrection means. So in their ignorance, the disciples says, stop, looking sad, clearly taken aback by Jesus' question. Apparently, no one who had been in Jerusalem should have been ignorant of what was happening. Maybe this question sounded to the disciples something like it would sound to us if someone came up to us and said, so is there anything interesting in the news these days? As if someone didn't realize that there's like, well, a pandemic going on. But Jesus continues to draw the disciples out. And he says, well, what things? What things have happened? And the, the, the disciples, you know, they, they respond saying, you know, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there? This question, of course, could hardly drip with more irony because standing in front of them is the one person who actually knows everything that has happened in Jerusalem. But the disciples stand there in their sadness while Jesus continues to ask, what things have happened? And so the disciples offer a summary. They offer a summary of what had happened to Jesus. And in their summary, we find that they had high expectations for this Jesus. They say, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel, verse 21. Here again, of course, is another statement dripping with irony. They are sad because they had hoped Jesus would be the one to redeem Israel. When here he is standing right in front of them as the resurrected Lord, the one to redeem Israel. But the disciples are standing there still sad. And why do the disciples have no joy here? Why is their life still filled with sadness? After all, if you follow their report, verses 19 through 24... The disciples give basically an accurate account of the Easter story. If our Sunday schools were being held today, these disciples' report would be almost exactly word for word what would be shared in our Sunday school. Jesus showed up, Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all people, but he was delivered over to be crucified to death. But then on Sunday morning, when the disciples went to the tomb, they found he was not there and an angel announced he's alive again. That's the Easter story. But it hasn't brought these disciples any joy or hope yet. Why not? Well, the text says that there's two problems for these disciples. In verse 24, Cleopas and his companion again deliver at least the third line completely dripping with irony. 
They say, some who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. In other words, there's reports about the resurrection, but no one's actually seen Jesus, so we can't have any real hope in his resurrection again. Even though Jesus is standing right in front of them, they are seeing him. But that key line, him they did not see. Though they are looking at hope right in front of him, the disciples have not seen Jesus with understanding or faith. Their eyes are still blinded. That's problem number one. Well, Jesus identifies the second problem then. He says their hopes were dashed because their hearts were slow to believe. Their hearts have not believed everything that was written about the Christ in the scriptures. They had an expectation that God would redeem Israel, but their vision for this hope was based on some of what God had said about the Messiah and not all that God had said about the Messiah. Specifically, they were awaiting the Redeemer of Israel to be a king on David's throne who would come in power and glory, but they were not expecting a suffering Savior. They were not expecting a man who would die, though that too is what the scriptures predict about Jesus. So we have two problems for these disciples. Joy and hope are blocked because they have eyes that do not see and hearts that do not believe all that the scriptures say about Jesus. And if I could just pause for a moment, I I believe we can often find ourselves in danger of missing the solid hope and joy of Easter morning for these same two reasons that the disciples missed hope and joy. On the one hand, Some of us have not yet seen Jesus with eyes of faith. You know, we can spit out facts about Jesus. My guess is many people could tell the Easter story, something about angels showing up and announcing Jesus was risen. But even if we could tell these same facts, our lives have not yet been changed from fear, sadness, and disappointment to faith, hope, and joy because we have not seen Jesus. Perhaps we find Jesus inspiring, but hardly life-changing. Maybe we're primarily focused on our goals and expectations for life, or on our idea of what God must be like, or the way he must act, or what we think a God would do. And in our expectations, our vision is blocked, and we are disappointed. And we wonder why God isn't coming through to fulfill our vision and expectations for life. And the reason is that we haven't seen Jesus the Son of God, who came in the power of God, died to redeem us from sin, is now risen and alive and reigning in heaven, ready to return on the final day. That is the Savior that brings joy and hope out of sadness and disappointment. That is the Savior who offers full forgiveness of sins and life eternal to all who come to him in faith. But we will miss that hope and joy if we have not yet seen Jesus with eyes of faith. On the other hand, some of us may not have believed all that the scriptures say about Jesus. One of the commentators I read this week made a fascinating point. He said, you know, the disciples in Jesus' day tended to expect that Jesus was going to arrive in power and glory, but they missed that he was coming to suffer and die for sins. But he said, you know, many, perhaps even Christians today, are very familiar with Jesus' death for our sins to cleanse us from guilt but we can forget his coming return in power and glory. And while it's true that Jesus' salvation does impact our life now in profound ways, the heartbeat of Christianity is the hope of the glory that's still to come, 
the hope of the glory that will come when Jesus returns and he brings the kingdom with him. Sometimes we fail because we're short-sighted and forget what's still to come. There was a, an Italian, Primo Levi, who survived a concentration camp in World War II. And I came across a reference to his memoir in recent weeks in which he argues that the most fatal quality of the concentration camp that he lived through was its ability to erase the idea of life outside and beyond itself. said to be in the camp was to lose history, identity, and personality. But he said the most chilling aspect of the camp was its power to erase the future. With the future gone came a moral and spiritual death that meant that all of life was nothing more than the status quo of the concentration camp. Now maybe this seems dramatic, but may I suggest that some of us are living life with no idea of life beyond our own life, of this world, that there's nothing beyond the status quo of this life in which to try to find meaning and happiness. Sports, boyfriends, work, working out, retirement, these things dominate our hearts and our minds, and Jesus is confined to someone who forgives our failings and relieves our guilt now, but we forgot about the future and the returning kingdom and glory. But all of Scripture makes clear that the Christian hope is that whatever happens now in this fallen world, we know the end of the story. And the end of the story is Jesus coming in power and glory to take us to be with him forever. If we lose this future hope, then a moral and spiritual death occurs. But find this hope, and even this life is transformed by the guarantee of what is coming. So let us not lose sight of that eager expectation. So here are the disciples. Eyes blind, they have not seen Jesus. Hearts slow to believe all that is in the scriptures. But we arrive at verse 26, and here we come to the turning point of the text. And so notice with me now in the second half of our story, starting with verse 26, how Jesus addresses these slow hearts and blind eyes. Jesus begins by addressing their hearts that were slow to believe in the scriptures. In verse 26, we see that Jesus challenges their assumptions. He says, O foolish ones, and slow to believe, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, we shouldn't read Jesus' statement here as a harsh rebuke. We hear, O foolish ones, and we think, man, Jesus Jesus wasn't a really very kind person here. Don't don't read it in that harsh rebuke sort of way. Read it more like uh, something we would say to our children in the face of an unnecessary complaint. And we'd say, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. Don't you remember? Now, that's the kind of tone that Jesus is using. Don't you remember, children, what the scriptures say? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament began with Moses and ended with the prophets, and Jesus walked them through that and everything in between to show them all the things that God had foretold about him. And that, of course, is the conversation that every lover of scripture wishes we could hear, to hear Jesus himself describe all that the Old Testament has to say about him. We weren't there, and Scripture hasn't recorded all the details for us. 
But through the teachings of the apostles and our own reading of the Old Testament, we can maybe begin to fill in some of the details of what Jesus shared about both his suffering and death and also his resurrection and life. We think about the prophecies of the Messiah, that he would have to suffer and shed his blood. What would Jesus share about that? Well, maybe Jesus started at the very beginning in Genesis 3.15 when God promised Adam and Eve in the wake of their first sin that one day God would send an offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, though in the process the serpent would bite his heel. Maybe he moved on to Exodus where Israel was redeemed through the blood of the Passover lamb shed to cover them. Maybe he talked of the sacrificial system or the day of atonement in which blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Maybe Jesus went on to the Psalms and noted Psalm 22, which echoed Jesus' death on the cross so closely. Or maybe he talked about Psalm 118, which declares that the cornerstone would be a stone that the builders had rejected. Maybe he went to Isaiah 53, that well-known language that God's servant would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And there are many other passages he could have gone to. But then, of course, the Old Testament also talks about Jesus' resurrection glory. Maybe he would have looked back at the story of Abraham and Isaac when Abraham received back his son alive from the sentence of death. Maybe he went to the story of Jonah who emerged alive from the depths of the whale after three days in the belly of that great fish. Or maybe he went to Ezekiel's prophecies of the temple that would be destroyed but then would be rebuilt with all its former glory and rivers of life would flow from that temple to all the nations. Maybe he went to Psalm 16 which declares that God will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Maybe he mentioned the Messiah's glory from Daniel chapter 7 when the Son of Man came and was given glory in a kingdom or any number of other prophecies from the Old Testament. But whatever exact text Jesus covered in this conversation, what's clear is that the Old Testament doesn't just happen to include a couple prophecies here and there that maybe we could pick up some clues that a Savior was coming. No, the entire story of the Old Testament from its prophets and prophecies to its songs and its psalms to its worship and its sacrifices to the temple to its kings to their glory to the stories of forgiveness, rescue, and redemption all the Old Testament points ahead to Christ and His work of redemption on the cross and His resurrection and His coming with glory in the eternal kingdom over which He will rule. And it's the accomplishment of all that suffering, that death, that atonement, that resurrection glory that Jesus achieved on Easter morning. And if that's what Jesus was talking about on the road, it's no wonder that his disciples say, didn't our hearts burn within us while Jesus talked to us from the scriptures? Here they have hearts being enlivened by the Spirit and giving a new idea of who this Messiah would be and what it would mean for him to redeem Israel. Well, once their hearts had been renewed, once their hearts had been given this new understanding of the Messiah from Scripture, now they are ready to believe and to see Jesus with eyes that would see who he is. And so they arrive at the disciples' house and Jesus agrees to stay with them and eat. Clearly, the disciples must have recognized Jesus' authority in some way because they let him break the bread and bless the meal. Typically, the host would do that, but here's Jesus, the guest, doing that. And there it is in the breaking of the bread that Jesus lifts the veil 
and their eyes are opened, and they see Jesus. We don't know what it is exactly about the breaking of the bread that made Jesus evident. Maybe he had a particular manner of breaking the bread that the disciples had seen when he fed the 5,000 and broke the bread and said, this bread is life indeed. Or maybe they remembered that manner from the, from the Lord's Supper, the night uh, Jesus ate before, before he went to the cross and he broke the bread and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Maybe it was a man or maybe it was something he said or maybe God just lifted the veil from their eyes so that now the disciples know for sure Jesus is alive. Their expectations have not failed. Their hopes are restored and fulfilled in a way they never dreamed by their encounter with their risen Savior, the hope of Israel. And notice how the disciples respond. It says that they arose that same hour and ran back to Jerusalem. Now, think what you know about the story. We know that this was a journey of about seven miles, and we know that the hour was late when they arrived at their house. They pressed Jesus to stay because evening was far gone. So here's evening far gone, the hour's late, and it's a seven-mile trip back to Jerusalem, but that same hour, the disciples got up and sprinted back. I, I imagine them trying to run a little faster than they're actually capable of running. You know, you sprint, you get tired, so you walk as fast as you can till you can run again, making that trip as quickly as they can back to Jerusalem to the gathering of the eleven and the other disciples. But lo and behold, they burst into the room and they find that the rest of the disciples have already also heard the good news. They're shouting, he's risen indeed. He's appeared to Simon Peter. The gospels themselves don't relate this account of Jesus appearing to Simon Peter, but Paul alludes to it in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to Simon himself. And so here's all the disciples shouting, did you hear Jesus is risen? And then these two disciples share their story of how Jesus had appeared to them too and was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. It's like one of those moments maybe where uh, a, a, a sibling or, or a member of a family shows up at a gathering unexpectedly that they weren't supposed to be at. And everyone's shouting at once, you know, I didn't think you were going to be here. What are you doing here? You're supposed to be five states away. And there's sort of pandemonium and the joy and excitement that this person is here. And that's what this gathering must have been like on Sunday night. And yet everything that was true for those disciples on that first Easter night, all of that same joy and that same hope is true for us on this Easter morning. Because it's the appearance, it's the arrival, it's the resurrection of Jesus that makes Easter such a morning of joy. Well, before we end, let me make one final comment Can I draw your attention to one final note about the joy of Jesus' appearance? Notice how Jesus changes these disciples. They go from standing still and sad with their hopes dashed to their hearts burning in his presence. They desire to be with him, urging him to stay with them. Their lives are electrified when they recognize him as the risen and alive Savior, leading them to sprint back to Jerusalem for a night of rejoicing. Why is it that Jesus' resurrection changed everything for these disciples? Well, can I suggest that it's an intersection of the disciples' sense of their own need and their longing for a Savior combined with the risen presence of the Son of God? Because to find true hope and joy, you have to be longing for something. You have to know you need something. Some of you know a shocking truth about my wife and I, 
and that is that neither of us like chocolate. You could bring a dump truck of the best chocolate in the world and dump it in our driveway, and it would bring us no joy or hope or happiness. It would just be a hassle of trying to get rid of it. If you have no longing for something, there's no joy in receiving it. And I would hazard a guess that if we don't feel the joy of Easter morning, could I ask whether we have a true sense of our need of a Savior and a true sense of longing for the King that is coming? The disciples knew their need. They were longing for the Redeemer of Israel. Jesus' death dashed all their hopes of the one who could bring what they so desperately wanted. But that's why joy came at the arrival of Jesus, mighty in deed and word, who spoke and acted with the power and the Spirit of God and raised their hopes that he would satisfy the one thing they longed for, the redemption of God's people. This hope seemed dashed at first by his death, but it was fulfilled beyond their imaginations by his resurrection and explanation of the salvation that God came to offer through him. And that's the question for you and I this morning. Do we see our sinfulness, our selfishness, our pettiness that we can't overcome ourselves? Do we know our need of a Savior? Do we see the brokenness of the world around us? Do we long for God's salvation to be fulfilled? And do we see Jesus, the Son of God, who comes and lives and dies and rises and is now alive, offering salvation and future glory to all who will come to him in faith? Our joy in Jesus will also come at the intersection of our need of a Savior, our longing for redemption, and the arrival of resurrection hope in the person of Jesus Christ. See, sadness and disappointment turn to joy and hope when the disciples' eyes see Jesus and their hearts believe the Scriptures and all that God is doing so that their hearts are now alive with hope. And that hope is ours too because He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you for what you have done in Jesus Christ. How I thank you for this Savior, the Son of God. How I pray that we would know our need of a Savior. How I pray that our hearts would long for the salvation Jesus offers so that our hearts would also be electrified with hope and joy in the coming of Jesus Christ. That our Easter morning joy would be a joy that is a guaranteed hope because of the risen Savior as we watch and wait for him to come again. We thank you for these things, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.